building a foundation for tomorrow's naval aviators. The Bell 407GXI is the next-generation advanced helicopter training system, offering exceptional value and proven reliability. See the Bell 407GXI in action at bell.co slash navy407. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my normal co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamblett. Hello, Bill. Well, I'm glad to hear that you think I'm normal. That's, that's yeah. yeah. As, as, a, that's as opposed good. to Bill Bray and Paul Kingsbury, <laughs> the abnormal co-hosts. So, big development overnight. Big development. The uh, the news was that while the president visited uh, the the you know ships and and uh, sailors in Yokosuka, Japan, uh, that the White House military office asked Seventh Fleet to make sure that the USS John S. McCain was out of sight, uh, and so there's this story is sort of unfolding as uh, you know on in the Twitter sphere and Wall Street Journal had a story last night. The Wall Street, the Washington Post had a follow up this morning. Uh, so the Wall Street Journal photo showed a tarp over the stern of the John S. McCain. Uh, and then, um, as you mentioned uh, earlier today, uh, uh, Rear Admiral Charlie Brown, the, the Navy's new Chinfo. Brand new Chinfo. Brand new, he um, restarted the Navy Chinfo Twitter uh, account. After two years it, of, uh, of, of dormancy, yeah, cold right, iron. and started it today to say no, 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 wait, that that photo was not the right photo, right. was not not an accurate photo of what was happening on the McCain when the president was yeah, that in your stern Yukosuka. was the not stern obscured was during the visit by that, a tarp, that, right, so forth and so on. But right. there are other details that are troubling, right, right. which is the the crew of the McCain was told you guys are not invited to the commander in chief's remarks aboard Wasp. Right. And as some of them, they were given a 96, apparently. Um, and as some of them decided, hey, I, I got it. I got liberty, but I'd like to hear the president speak. Um, they were turned away on the uh, on the quarterdeck or on the brow um, because they were wearing McCain ball caps. So as a retired naval officer, those were troubling elements. And uh, um, the other thing that's happened on social media is. Uh, now B McCain ball caps are now like a uh, a weaponized political item, sort of an anti uh, "Make America Great Again" ball cap, if you will. And Bill Crystal, the the well known conservative pundit, um, has uh, come up with that idea. Like, why don't we all wear McCain ball caps? And so, this is tragic. You know, our sailors should not be political props. Um, and it's it's saddening to me that that would be a line item in a a you know, read ahead for a presidential visit that you would be told, and that one ship cannot be in the president's view, that destroyer. Right. It's it's tragic. Well, I mean, you know, it's well known that uh, President Trump and Senator McCain had a you know public spat. They did not like each other or respect each other, I think. Um, both made very public remarks about each other. 
uh, including the president during the uh, during the presidential campaign, mentioning in one of the um, uh, debates, you know, that he didn't think that Trump or that he didn't think that McCain was a war hero because you know heroes don't get captured, right? He preferred yeah. people who don't get captured. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, those of us in the Navy know that that ship, the John S. McCain, is actually named for three generations of McCain leaders, right? The grandfather, the father, and the senator yeah. all served in the Navy admirably. Uh, As admirals. The ad- other two were admirals. The other two were admirals, yeah. right? And so the ship was not, originally was not named after Senator John McCain, who passed away last year, but it was named after the two senior uh, McCains. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you said, anytime the military gets you know, used as a backdrop for politics or, you know, is, is weaponized politically. It's a tragedy. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And, uh, you know, we'll see how this uh, unfolds, where the original order came from will be interesting. You know, who in the White House military office thought that that was a good idea, that the McCain should be out of sight. You're going to take a ship that's, you know, part of Seventh Fleet, part of that Deseron there in Yokosuka, and you're going to make it disappear. Uh, while the president's there, what, it's a commissioned U.S. Navy ship. Why would it disappear? And then you turn away sailors wearing McCain ball caps from coming on board the USS Wasp, where the president gave remarks to uh, to the fleet. Uh, so this is troubling, as you mentioned, um, at num- a number of different levels. And it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds and the details that come out. Who knew what? As we know that uh, acting Secretary Shanahan said he did not know anything about this. The president tweeted that he was not aware of this and wasn't his order. Um, but, you know, clearly some people, at least at the Seventh Fleet level, uh, at the staff level, at least, right, because they got the message, um, had to get this message and say, okay, well, you know, we'll make sure that that ship and the, the sailors are uh, are kept away from the president. Yeah, so, yeah. This, so is, uh, this is, again, the, the, the TikTok of that will, will come out. Yep. Um, and, and again, the Naval Institute is not involved in politics, uh, so we won't delve on this, uh, but it will be interesting. And these are the challenges that are very uh, close to all of us in, in, this, in this era uh, of, of uh, you know, politics in front of us at all times and so forth and so on. Um, so if I'm a member of the McCain crew, you know, what, what is this doing to my morale? What is, as, as we're just now getting beyond, hopefully, the tragedy of the summer of 2017 and trying to forge a new identity under new leadership and our good friend Micah, um, what does this do? Yeah. Does, this, does this instill greater pride? Is this a, a forcing function of unity? Um, or is this going to divide the crew in, in ways that uh, happen too often? I mean, you know, we go to family events and all of a sudden a big political squabble breaks out because you find out somebody's like something. And it's really volatile. It's, it's uh, you know, these are hot button issues. And we don't want to be talking about this on the mess decks or during Liberty. And it's just not fundamental to who we are. Yeah, and, and, and so this challenge is... Uh, it's it's uh, disappointing, and uh, hopefully we can get past it, and uh, we'll certainly figure out the details of who reacted in what way, and who came up with that idea, and so forth and so on. Those are germane because those are leadership issues and chain of command decision issues that affect the outcomes of Navy operations. Right, and you know? Commander Micah Murphy is the CEO of the McCain, and he was a Naval Institute fellow of 2016 to 2017, served on our editorial board. Uh, very, very smart, talented officer and uh, was he left the Naval Institute, 
left his fellowship at CSIS and, and the Naval Institute, headed back in his track to go to sea when the McCain collision happened that summer. And uh, suddenly he didn't go in to be EXO and then fleet up to CO. He went directly in as CO and has been the commanding officer of that ship for a couple of years as they've rebuilt the ship, as they've gotten it ready to go to sea again. Uh, and we saw him last out at West in, yeah. in San Diego in February. In February he was yeah. able to come to that. So. On okay, other so news, we'll, we'll see how yeah, that we'll, develops. We'll, we'll get out of that. Uh, just felt again, we're not a political organization. We don't have a political affiliation or a political opinion with respect to this, um, but certainly felt uh, it was uh, something that should be discussed within the independent forum and our charter. Uh, another interesting tidbit uh, for uh, the podcast audience is our first block of summer interns has arrived. Uh, this is the second year that we've done a summer internship. We have eight in this cohort of very hard chargers. They've been here since Tuesday. They're already starting to create content for all of our properties, digital and print. So keep your eyes uh, on the, uh, the various things that we create here to look for midshipman intern bylines. And uh, very excited to have them here for, uh, for the duration of the first block, which goes until June 21st, and then we'll roll right in the following Monday to second block and then third block. So the Naval Institute is very proud to be an official training command, if you will, for <laughs> right. uh, for Midshipman Naval Academy, in this case, Naval Academy Midshipman Summer yeah. Training. For our, uh, our listeners who are ROTC or OCS-affiliated folks, uh, we are hoping to expand this program outside of the Naval Academy. So last year and this year, it's Naval Academy only, but we, we are, you know, we live here uh, on the Naval Academy grounds in Hospital Point. So that's an easy place for us to start, right? But we hope to be able to expand this out. So have uh, maybe in the future have some ROTC uh, midshipmen come to the Naval Academy. And, and also Coast Guard cadets. And, so we and, came right, close right, this year with the Coast Guard. to getting Coast Guard cadets where, where timing was just slightly off. So I, I, if I was to be a betting man and I was to predict, I would say next year we will have X number of Coast Guard cadets in the mix. That's cool. And then from there, we would try to get uh, NROTC midshipmen involved. So great program. We throw them into the deep end. They're content creators. They're peers. We first name basis. Yep. Um, we take them to the Pentagon to shadow the USNI news team um, for half a day. That's a real eye opener. And most of them have never been to the Pentagon, not to mention seeing the Pentagon press offices. So a lot of stuff. And they leave better informed of what the Naval Institute is for one thing, but also better prepared to be Naval officers because we do open the aperture for them in a, in a macro kind of way. We make them better readers and writers and better researchers as well. So it makes them better undergraduate students. So a lot of good goodness with the internship. Yeah, it's great stuff. Okay, well, let's get to our guests this week. We're able to highlight the first article uh, on the podcast from the June issue of Proceedings. So uh, the June issue got to people's mailboxes early, earlier than normally. We, we always hope that it uh, lands in the mailbox on the 31st or, th you know, the, the last day or first day of the month. Uh, and this, uh, this month, the uh, printers got it out early and got it into the mail and the mail efficiently delivered it. So a lot of people who are print um, subscribers, members uh, have seen it. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, if you're a uh, digital member, uh, it'll be on our website tomorrow afternoon. Our, uh, our staff is, uh, busily loading up all of the uh, electronic uh, versions of the magazine. 
so that it will be live tomorrow afternoon on our website. Uh, but the first uh, uh, authors that we're going to interview today are a husband-wife team, U.S. Coast Guard, Lieutenant Commanders Kristen Pecora and Piero Pecora, U.S. Coast Guard. They're joining us from the Boston area and actually they're in two separate areas, Boston and the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. Uh, so welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, Commanders Pecora. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Hey, yeah, thanks. And you guys are in the process of uh, PCSing. Uh, so you've been stationed in the Boston area, and you just wrapped up your household goods shipment. And, and Kristen, you mentioned before we uh, came on the air that you had just signed the uh, the household goods inventory. So thanks for taking. I mean, that's a hectic day. Never mind adding a, a podcast uh, appearance, but thanks for taking time to do that. And Piero, you mentioned that you're down at the Coast Guard Academy, going through a PXO course uh, in route to be uh, XO of a cutter. Right. Yep. So uh, tell us about your current assignments and the ones that you're going to, and then we'll get to your article. Well, hold on. Before we get to that, how did you guys meet? Oh, okay. Right? So how did you guys come to be <laughs> a husband so, and wife team? Um, Piero yeah. and I are classmates. Uh, we're both members of the class of 2004, and our third class year, we lived across the hall from each other and uh, got it, started talking, um, got to know each other, and Things just kind of clicked, and um, somewhere uh, around our senior year, uh, Piero says that I informed him that we were going to get married, and um, <laughs> and it's kind of been uh, history since then. Very cool. Well, to be fair to her, you had to you had to you know stake your claim before the detailers gave you orders, so it was a bit of a timing thing. To be fair, gotcha. yeah, you had to state your claim or lose her forever. Pretty much. Okay, we get it. How, how well has the the Coast Guard done at moving you guys and keeping you geographically together during your careers? The Coast Guard's I actually think. done a gr- great job, I would say. We've only had one geo bachelor tour, and that was because I headed off to grad school in Tallahassee. There's not a lot of Coast Guard cutters there. So. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and Kristen, you're you're wrapping up uh, or just wrapped up uh, your tour as EXO of uh, of a Coast Guard cutter. I did. I am. I've got about two weeks left of EXO of Seneca. She's a great ship, and I'm I'm going to miss the crew and the command dearly. Um, and I'm headed down to Norfolk to be the EA for the Force Com Commander. And where is Seneca home ported? Seneca's home ported in Boston, right down in the uh, north end. Um, so. Uh, Honestly, I'm lucky I haven't gained uh, 20 pounds with all of the great food that is literally right outside the front gate. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And, and Piero, what's been your job the last couple of years up in the Boston area? So I've been the, the admin officer for the New England area. Uh, so it's, it's actually probably been a good experience prepping me to be XO of a ship. So it's, it's the typical uh, XO role. And, um, and it's been a good, good learning experience for me. Nice. Uh, so you guys co-authored this article called uh, on pages. It starts on page 22 of the June issue of Proceedings. It's titled "The Coast Guard Should Helm Southcom," Helm H E L M. And so lead lead Southcom. And the, the deck says the Coast Guard has led the battle to dismantle the criminal organizations that destabilize the Latin and Central American region. Now it should command the battle space. So give us a 30,000 foot perspective on on what your idea is there. 30,000 foot perspective on this is that uh, Southcom has a very unique uh, mission set to kind of 
falls outside of the national defense strategy because it's a it's very much a nation building AOR and the situations that are going on in that area are directly affecting uh, DHS uh, missions such as Southwest border security. And so since the Coast Guard has the unique law enforcement capability vested in us, as well as straddling both the world of DHS and DOD, we really fit the bill of the person or, you know, a service that should take the lead in the AOR just due to the nature of our work and our expertise. You mentioned DHS, Department of Homeland Security, Southwest Border Security, and in your uh, on the first page of your article, you, you talk a lot about uh, the Northern Triangle of Central America, so El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and this is very much in the news as lots of the migrants that are coming up to the Southwest border are from that area. Um, but you also your article also talks a lot about the uh, the problem of illegal drug trafficking and the Coast Guard's role in that. So d- delve a little bit deeper into that, if you will. The way we we were looking at this is you know between the two of us uh, with our we've got 19 years uh, between the two of us have been doing counter drug operations either on ships or uh, command and control, and you know this sort of it comes up a lot in the conversations between us that it's not necessarily just the the southern border and the issues that we're directly seeing on the U.S. coastline. It's it's really, it's an issue in depth. So, you know, we've seen a significant increase in, in migrant families coming up across the southern border, and really that's coming from the northern triangle of Central America. And, and it's not just the, 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 the pull factor of trying to come to the U.S., but it's the it's the push factor of, of people feeling the need to leave the Northern Triangle. And that's really due to the lack of economic prospects and the instability in those countries that's created by the drug trade itself. Kristen, as uh, XO of Seneca, did your ship, even though based in Boston, did you deploy down to the Southcom AOR? Did you get to the Caribbean and do some of that counter-drug uh, mission? Absolutely. We've, uh, in my time on Seneca, we did one uh, patrol in the Caribbean as well as a patrol in the uh, Eastern Pacific. Uh, commonly, our Atlantic area cutters are heading through the Panama Canal um, because 75% of the drug flow goes through the Eastern Pacific. And uh, luckily, we did see some success down there. Um, and the cartels are only getting more and more savvy in their methods of uh, maritime transport of cocaine. So how do those ops go, just for the, the folks in the audience who have no idea what the Coast Guard does in terms of counter-drug? What would be a, a high-tempo, kinetic day in the life of Seneca? Uh, as you said, you had some, quote-unquote, success. What, what would be some of the uh, mechanics of that? So we saw a wide variety of um, different transports while we were down there. Uh, one of the new... Um, uh, things that is being used by cartels is low profile go fast vessels. So I think, you know, um, go fast vessels are just high speed boats that carry about a ton of cocaine, sometimes more, and just try to speed their way up the, up to their next point of um, call. Low profile go fast uh, vessels are similarly, you know, have multiple outboard engines, but are constructed so that only about six inches or so are above the water line. And so it makes it very hard to detect these visually 
Um, and so, um, uh, that's, that's a new, uh, construct. We also had a case, um, where we boarded a fishing vessel and were able to find a, a hidden compartment built into the fishing vessel, which had, uh, roughly 25, 50 pound bales of cocaine in it. So, um, you know, this is a business for these cartels. They are always trying to improve, uh, the method in which they transport the cocaine. Sometimes we spot these visually with aircraft or uh, in one case on Seneca, we actually spotted one visually from the cutter itself. Uh, we get into hot pursuit and hopefully, you know, by the end of it, we're, we're boarding uh, these vessels and bringing drugs up onto our flight deck. So you're cruising around and does a lookout uh, see something or do you get tipper information from, uh, you know, other assets and, and then you're off and running. So how's the, how does that sort of go down? So we do get information from other assets. Gyatis Salt is our primary, um, is the primary entity for detection and monitoring of uh, these sort of cases. And we're always in constant contact with them. And, um, and sometimes it is, you know, visually. Uh, we didn't deploy with a helicopter, but a good amount of Coast Guard cutters will deploy with a helicopter. Hitron, uh, which is our our helicopters that are authorized to shoot out engines on these go fast vessels. Um, so sometimes you do it visu- see it visually or um, through the use of maritime patrol aircraft. So we have eyes in the skies, eyes on um, on the boat, and um, eyes back ashore that help us uh, find uh, find and locate these vessels, and then we take over and do the rest. And so there's a part of your crew that's trained in the boarding and searching. Uh, that's not just a general duty for just anyone, is it? No, that the Coast Guard, as part of its law enforcement capability, has a standardized program in which we train our uh, petty officers and junior officers to be boarding officers, go on board, uh, conduct uh, boardings in accordance with uh, international and U.S. law and ascertain where potentially drugs may be located and then uh, handle accordingly. Is that that's just part of the crew? Um, I mean, you don't have a special cadre that does that. That's baked into the capability of, of, of the crew in general? Absolutely. That's baked into the, okay. uh, any Coast Guard cutter or any white hold Coast Guard cutter uh, has that capability capability baked into them because my my analog is uh, when i was cag ops is you know we had a seal team aboard that would do hvbss um and and so there's a very specific mission set for the special operators on board but what you're saying is the crew you know as as it's not quite a secondary duty but um that that's something that an ood would wind up doing uh in the in a normal course of business not necessarily an OD. Um, we do have uh, maritime enforcement specialists that are assigned to the cutter, and they are our law enforcement subject matter experts. But um, you know, we go, we take people who are interested in the LE program. They might be machinery uh, technicians, they might be bosun mates, and we put them through this uh, training. And so, right on, on board right now, we probably have about twenty people that are either qualified boarding team members or boarding officers or pursuit members um, that we use part of, you know, the crew to do this. How often do the go fast boats uh, either try to run away or shoot back or, you know, uh, oppose the boarding? 
shoot, shoot back is very, very rare. Runaway is very common. Um, one of, you know, one tactic they'll try to do is throw drugs overboard so they can go faster. And that's why the Coast Guard now has, um, well, it's about a 15 year old program at this point, but Hitron, you know, having a helicopter uh, shoot out its engines is a very effective way to, to stop the go fast. Yeah, yeah. So the, the traditional go fast is like the Miami vice, you know, the, the, the cigarette, boat. the cigarette boat, the 40 yeah. foot fountain with the twin 500 uh, inboard outboard engines, uh, the, the, the six inch profile go fast. How fast are they? It really depends. I haven't, we've, we were able to stop one, um, which is a very odd, unique case that's uh, currently being tried as we were the first vessel to stop a empty go-fast vessel or low-profile go-fast vessel. So the crew is actually being tried under DITFA, which is a law that was created to specifically prosecute crews that are clearly engaged in drug trafficking. Like There is only one purpose you would have be driving a low profile go fast vessel and it's not for recreation these aren't very when you think of miami vice those are some really nice boats the boats we're seeing out here are not very nice they're gray fiberglass hulled uh vessels that are very rudimentary they're effective but they're not something that you would want to go take a joy ride off um off the coast on yeah what's the crew two or three guys uh it can range about from three to five people Gotcha. So when you grab, when you take them into custody, do you hand them over to host nation or where, where do they wind up? So we have a um, series of interconnected bilateral agreements with all of the foreign country or all of our partner nations down there. And so it really depends on each bilateral uh, agreement. In lots of cases, um, they're kept on board uh, a Coast Guard vessel. And when we have the opportunity, we transport them back to a respective location in the U.S. and they are tried in U.S. courts. The majority of them are tried in U.S. courts. Okay, so let, let's pull back up to thirty thousand feet and get back to the thesis of the article uh, in the new issue of proceedings. So, based on the expertise you've just articulated. You guys are kind of saying, hey, it's it's high time for Southcom, which has traditionally been helmed by Army officers and Navy officers. Maybe there's been a Marine in there. Um, I, I know the first time I went there, um, I was aide to Air Land in the mid-90s, and it was an Army officer was was Southcom. And uh, I know we've had a host of uh, of Naval officers uh, as or Navy officers as Southcom. So what you're saying is based on the fact that the primary threat is drugs, cocaine is the engine of the threat, and the expertise you just articulated, it's high time for the Coast Guard to be Southcom himself or herself. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I, I think what we've shown here um, with the Coast Guard is, you know, this is mission set has been our bread and butter for decades now. And and our, our officer corps comes up through these experiences when we've, we've shown um, – with the Joint Interagency Task Force South, it's been a Coast Guard flag officer that's led that for almost three decades now. The the J3 for operations at Southcom for nearly a decade has been a Coast Guard two-star admiral. We, we've shown our ability as a service to, to lead with within the, the COCOM, and we think that the service is ready to take a, a larger role in leadership within Southcom. 
Are there yeah. any Title Ten issues or anything that uh, you know you guys not being a DoD uh, service? I know we can do tack on and and uh, you know God forbid you say to a Coast Guard uh, service member that you're not in the military. That's a bad thing to do. Um, how do I know this? Um, and, uh, you know, what we see every year when we go to new London and do our, our panels up there, um, is, Hey, I will take any coast guard Lieutenant against any Navy Lieutenant in terms of kick-ass operations. And the coast guard, you know, person is going to win every time in terms of what they do just as a regular course, whether it's hurricane evacuations or other natural disasters or other humanitarian stuff. It's really eye-watering. And so, you know, we don't have to get into, you know, who's cooler because the, the answer is probably the Coast Guard. Um, wow, but those are fighting I, words. Yeah, I know, right? And and so, but it's the truth. <laughs> I you know, agree. This is a fighter guy saying this, by the way. Um, and, and so, uh, again, I, I my eyes have been opened, you know, and I've been a good friend with Mick Pog, Vince Patton for many years, and he used to, you know, beat me about the head and shoulders with my attitude. But I'm just talking now, never mind the esprit issues or the esprit quotient. What are the legalities of making a Coast Guard officer into the COCOM? Are there any constraints as so, the law is currently written? So I looked at Title 10 specifically. Uh, chapter 6 discusses the combatant commanders. And um, the only stipulations is that they have a prior joint tour as a flag officer and that they have uh, completed the appropriate level of JPME. Um, If you go into the, uh, it does say that a specialty code can only be assigned to the four DOD services but we have Coast Guard officers serving in joint capacities across the globe. That being said, there is also a catch-all that says the president can uh, um, just declare whoever as a combatant commander um, if deemed in the interest of national security. So even if a, you know, you could potentially, as a result, put a Coast Guard officer in charge of Southbound. You guys have uh, also, we talked a lot about the counter-drug mission and the Coast Guard's uh, core competency in in that region, but in your article, you also bring out some of the other challenges in the region that are sort of core competencies uh, for the Coast Guard to address. Like you mentioned climate change and how it's having real impacts on in the Caribbean and in uh, Latin America. And you also mentioned, you know, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, you know, the Coast Guard was all over the news in 2017 when the, the big hurricanes hit in Puerto Rico and in Florida, et cetera. Uh, so the, the Coast Guard has, has played a big role, not just in U.S., you know, HADR, Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Relief, but also in that region for a, a long time now. What What's your personal uh, experience in that mission set? But also, you know, talk a little bit about some of the capabilities that the Coast Guard inherently brings to, to those missions. Uh, for me personally, you know, I, I did a tour at the Seventh District staff and our and our response site, so our, our J three side. Uh, where is Seventh District? So Seventh District is out of Miami, but it. It, it covers all the way out across the Caribbean, and so it's both uh, domestic and and international in terms of in terms of region. So it's it's uh, pretty much a, a big chunk of the of the. Um, of the whole Caribbean. But for that, it was both doing HEDR with Southcom. So with us, it was primarily 
you know, Hispaniola and Cuba, so Domrep and and Haiti. And so there's a really, in that part of the Caribbean, those are really, um, you know, vulnerable populations. And so, especially after the earthquake, whenever we'd have a, a tropical storm roll through Hispaniola, it would be a, a full court press, both with Southcom, so Gray Forces, and with Coast Guard. And we would pretty much just split Hispaniola in half and, and would respond in kind. And, and so it's a, we, we get that experience in that region. It's really a joint effort between the Coast Guard with its, you know, standing um, role and then with Southcom in that surge force uh, in the direct aftermath of a, of a storm passing. And that really shows the, the difference between the different mindsets is that with HADR, it's about bringing in a very large capacity for a short duration to just surge to the threat and deliver that initial response where in a, in a DHS mindset, you know, we do work a lot with the, the other agents in the DHS like FEMA. And it's a, it's definitely a different mindset. It's about building capacity at the local level with those, with the for in, domestically at the local state level so that we bring in federal resources, only those high level resources to where they're they're needed, as opposed to a top-down approach where it's it's you know relying on the federal government to to do everything, and we think that in that mindset about doing the the front-end development work, working as partners with with the other entities, it builds up a better uh, resiliency. So it's not just about responding to a disaster, whether that's a short duration disaster like a tornado or a hurricane or a, a long onset disaster like like drought that that by doing that work to build resiliency which is really what our domestic model is set up to do it makes the the community able to better with you know respond but also like to to survive through that that disaster i think you hit on a sort of fundamental difference between the coast guard and uh, the DOD branches of the military. If, if you, and you guys frame it brilliantly at the beginning of this article, which is the, the existential threat is drugs. It's one of economics. It's not military necessarily, right? There, we're, we're not afraid that Guatemala is going to invade uh, the Gulf Coast of the United States. So with that being the case, what is the appropriate response, both short-term and long-term? And what is the, you know, so... The Coast Guard comes with a, a, uh, a sensibility that I don't think any other branch of the service has, which we've talked about, which is law enforcement, like you just said. And so I think that's what makes this, this idea really a, a, a double-click one for me. Uh, and I think there's an argument to be made even post-9-11. If we had viewed that as a law enforcement problem as much as it was a military threat, um, I think the response would have been a little more surgical and maybe we wouldn't still be in, at, at, at war in Afghanistan and Iraq here, you know, 18 years later. But that's a editorial comment. Again, it, you just said that there aren't any real stumbling blocks or speed bumps to the execution of this. Um, if we wanted to, you know, relieve Admiral Fowler with a Coast Guard officer, that's doable, right? I mean, we, it could happen. As far as we say it, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's no Title Ten, you know. Just like you said, um, that uh, Kristen, we'd, we'd have the guy would have to or girl would have to have previous joint experience, 
and the other JPME quals and so forth and so on, which is okay, yeah, right? They all I mean, have that. That's, that's right. right. You're not going to be an admiral um, yeah. in the Coast Guard or you know yeah. in, in the Navy without. So, do we have quals. anybody on the short list who would be a good fit? Not that we want to put the who in it, but you know, if we if somebody said, "I love this article," and and proceedings is known for being a change agent, that's all our hallmark. So this article will get in front of the right eyeballs, and somebody could go, "You know, this is an awesome idea. Let's do it." Who do we have somebody in the pipeline who could fill this billet? That's asking. I'm sure we have specific names. No, no, I don't want any names. I'm just saying. In in (laughs) okay, it's a binary question. Is it yes or no? (laughs) You're not supposed to ask. Yes. Okay. Good. There we go. Said you know, there's Coast Guard officers and Coast Guard flag officers already serving on combatant command staff. Beautiful. Yeah. I would say if you look at our our current uh, commandant, um, you know, has those four stars as well, and you look at his bio and his experiences. He would have been a natural fit for the role. Interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I predict that our the chair of our board, Admiral Stavridis, who served as the Southcom commander uh, before he went to UCOM, this was sometime in the mid two uh, thousands, early to mid two thousands. Uh, I bet he'll read this article and and you know get jazzed by it. Yeah, I think he's going to get no absolutely be real excited about this I, idea. I, my my prediction: this is going to happen. Yeah, you know, I, I think it'll be right. another notch in the belt of the independent forum as far as you know real consequential change offering an idea that yeah. Yeah, leads to change exactly. um, before we wrap up there's one other thing that i want to bring out from your article but also from the companion article by lieutenant andy kramer u.s navy uh that we we got these two articles we held them for to put them together as a package uh, and Kramer's article starts on page 25. Um, but both of you bring out this idea of, hey, if the U.S. doesn't lead in this region, uh, there are other world actors who will. Uh, and, and you bring out on page uh, 23 the point that uh, China has got this Belt and Road Initiative uh, that is building infrastructure projects around the world, uh, e- including in Latin America. Uh, and Andy Kramer brings out the Chinese. They br- he brings out uh, Russia's uh, operations and footprint in uh, Latin America, its alliance with Venezuela, et cetera. Alliance might be too hard a word, but, uh, you know, strong partnership, friendship with, uh, with the, the Venezuelan regime. You make the point, um, while sold as a peaceful path toward prosperity akin to the Marshall Plan, the Belt, Re- Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, increasingly appears to be a global version of predatory lending using control of a nation's transportation infrastructure as collateral. So give us a couple of examples from the Latin American region where the Chinese are trying to, you know, sort of get their fingers into uh, port infrastructure or road transportation infrastructure and, and you know, make those countries dependent on them uh, for the long haul? I think there are two good examples. Uh, one was the, the proposed Nicaraguan Canal project that was pitched before Belt and Road Initiative officially rolled out. But you saw that they were wanting to do this major project that had a lot of skepticism internationally and Nicaragua signed right up for it. And even though it was cutting through, you know, critical like world heritage uh, site level, um, you know, natural environments, and that that project seemed to die on the vine. Uh, but you just saw the the willingness of Nicaragua to just sign right up for that. And I'd say the other example is uh, it's probably you know 
real to the, the Navy is go look at the old Rodman Navy base in the Panama Canal zone. And it's now, it, it's now a, a Chinese run commercial port. I've been there back in the, back in the uh, yeah, mid, mid nineties when it was a U.S. Navy base yeah. and there was a Navy SEAL team there and uh, deployed down there for a couple exercises. Yeah. Uh, those are great, great it, examples. It's vastly different now. Yeah. I bet it does as the Chinese have moved in and, 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 you know, in places like Sri Lanka, for example, I'm you know very familiar with the Hamban Toda port uh, infrastructure that the Chinese have essentially bought themselves into. Uh, but they, you know, they, they start in commercially and then you don't know where that's going to go. Does that, does that guarantee that the future in the future, the Chinese Navy will port there, uh, maybe even do some infrastructure or basing overseas, basing those kinds of things. But the answer is yes. The, I mean, yeah. It's a communist country. Right. The answer right. is, is likely. There's to no be, differentiation between commercial and government. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's um, a cautionary tale and, and, and it's, uh, that Piero pointed that out is, uh, is, is really a, a, a foot stomper. It is right. Agreed. Okay, well, we are wrapping up on time here, running out of time, but we wanted to thank again uh, Lieutenant Commanders Kristen Pecora and her husband Piero Pecora, U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, they've authored this article in the June issue of Proceedings, page 22. It starts on page 22. The Coast Guard should helm Southcom. Kristen and Piero, thanks for joining us, and uh, all the best in your PCS as you uh, head down to the Hampton Roads area. Uh, Ward and I were talking with also with uh, Paul Kingsbury. Uh, that we will be down there probably for a Navy League event, it looks like, in uh, mid-October. So we're excited about that. We'll probably have uh, some sort of a junior officer or senior enlisted panel discussion uh, at an event at the Navy League. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, meet up with you while we're in uh, the Hampton Roads area. And uh, But until then, uh, good luck with your household goods shipment and your your uh, preparation for your XO tour, Piero, uh, and for Kristen, for your you. preparation for your, uh, you know, mid, mid-grade staff tour. Uh, th- those are always a lot of work and, uh, you know, definitely uh, unsung hero kinds of, uh, of, of tours. But it was great to have you on the, on the podcast. And thank you again for writing for Proceedings. And we wish you all the best. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings podcast. We'll be back again next week where we will talk with a naval history author about a new D-Day article that is out that really so it takes an interesting perspective on uh, D-Day 1944, whether it could have even been moved up earlier in history and uh, been carried out in 1943. The author is uh, Vince O'Hara. We'll have him on the podcast on Monday, the 3rd of June. Uh, and until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the Bell 407GXI, a helicopter bringing advanced training technology, best value in life cycle sustainability to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407.